Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. There are still very many people who believe that what happened at Waco, they call it their awakening. I think that uh, it gains more meaning as every day passes. The legacy of Waco, 30 years later, from Timothy McVeigh to the January 6th insurrection. It's Tuesday, the last day of January, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, a look at the long legacy of Waco, the standoff between federal agents and members of a religious sect that inspired a generation of far-right militiamen. And we hear how a judge closed off a legal avenue for one corporation seeking to make lawsuits go away in bankruptcy court. But first, more than three years after the first confirmed coronavirus case in the U.S., President Biden says it's time to end the national and public health emergencies first declared by former President Trump in 2020. May 11th is the date those declarations are now expected to expire. And that will also mean the end of some government programs funding testing, treatment and insurance related to the COVID-19 pandemic. So what does that mean for you? Earlier today, we asked someone who ought to know, U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy. He spoke with Scott Tong about the pandemic and also why he thinks the kind of public health approach we used to contain the coronavirus could also be a model for addressing another epidemic in America, gun violence. Now, before we talk about gun violence, a quick question about the pandemic. May 11th is the day the White House says it wants to end the public health state of emergency for COVID-19 that was initially declared by President Trump back in 2020. So what's going to change on May 11th? Will the free tests and free vaccines and treatments end? Well, I'm glad you asked about this, Scott. The end of the public health emergency uh, does not mean that COVID is gone. Uh, What it is is a recognition that we've made tremendous progress since the beginning of the pandemic. And if you look at the numbers, you even see that we have gone from a time where we were losing thousands of people a day to the virus and had tens of thousands of people uh, hospitalized, uh, over 100,000 in fact, and a time where we had over a million people a day who were getting sick, uh, to a scenario that is dramatically better. But we still have to focus on getting people vaccinated, getting people treatments, uh, because we know how to protect people. We've just got to make sure that people utilize uh, these tools for protection. So we're going to keep doing that even after the public health emergency ends. Mm -hmm. Um, The emergency itself has had implications, though, for for cost. We know that during the emergency, we were able to offer many people uh, free tests, free vaccines, free treatments. And what is happening now with the next few months as we transition to a post-emergency phase is that many of these treatments and vaccines will be picked up and by the commercial market. And what we want to do is to make sure that everybody, if you have insurance or not, continues to have access to these tools. Okay. Uh, But as you're saying, the federal government will be less on the hook or off the hook for some of these costs. Let me ask you about gun violence. Intuitively, I get how the pandemic is a public health problem with doctors and data leading the conversation. I I understand how smoking and addiction are public health problems that the Surgeons General in the past have talked about. But gun violence, what's the public health connection here? 
Well, Scott, quite simply, I think it's whenever you have a larger number of people who are dying for preventable reasons, that constitutes a public health crisis. And that has been the case for gun violence, sadly, in our country for a long time. The idea of taking a public health approach to a public health crisis is that you, number one, you you study the crisis, you invest money in, in research to understand what factors are driving uh, the crisis and what solutions would actually work. You also use that data to target your resources at areas and populations that are hardest hit. And then you want to, to use evidence to guide the kind of interventions you take. You also want to focus on a harm reduction approach, uh, recognizing that various means can uh, reduce risk, even if they don't eliminate the risk entirely. And you also want to, in a public health approach, engage communities in this process. This isn't a top-down approach. This is ensuring that communities are a part of the solutions that are being conceived of and implemented. That's Mm -hmm. what it means to take a public health approach to an issue like gun violence. Now, sadly, for a long time, uh, the research in this space has been really starved uh, because Congress did not put forward any funds for gun violence research until literally just a few years ago. And so Mm. I was grateful to see that step forward in 2018 that finally allocates some federal funds to gun violence research. But we need a lot more of it, Scott, because the the depth of the problem is profound. In 2020, more Americans died of gun-related injuries than in any other year on record. Yeah. Um, As you know, Dr. Murthy, there is a continuous feeling of hopelessness to many in this country on this issue. We keep seeing these awful shootings, the mass shootings. This morning I Googled gun violence, hopeless, got four million hits. How can Mm. you, how can doctors and researchers reframe this conversation? Well, it's it's a really important question, Scott, because we we need to have hope. We need, because we need the public to also be engaged in this broader effort. And to be engaged, people need to know that there is an actual path forward here. And listen, I, I feel the frustration. You know, I, it, I'm not only a surgeon general, but I'm a, I'm a dad. You know, who worries about my kids yeah. and uh, about their own safety uh, every time they go to school, because I hear about the same school shootings that all of us do all around America. I'm also a doctor who's taken care of many patients over the years who have been the victims of gun violence, and I've seen that gun violence doesn't just affect the individual, but it has a terrible effect on their families and on their communities, creating fear. Uh, creating additional requirements and demands of them in terms of caring for their relatives. I mean, the price that we pay as a community for gun violence is extraordinary, and I've seen and felt that. But the, I do feel hope, and here's why. Mm. Because this past within the last 12 months, we took action, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, uh, to address gun violence in a way that we've never done before. Is this law going to solve all our problems with gun violence? No. But is it an important first step? Yes. It provided funding that we haven't had before for supporting mental health in our schools, for supporting community violence prevention programs, for supporting states and enacting red flag laws that will keep guns out of the hands of people who would harm themselves and others. And the other good news is that we have building evidence that there are additional steps we can take that will help as well. We know that child access prevention laws, Mm -hmm. safe safe storage laws, Mm -hmm. that these have been shown to reduce homicides and suicides. We can actually work to implement these in more communities. Dr. Murthy, as you know, the loudest thing a Surgeon General can do is elevate an issue in the public conversation to the highest level. Mm -hmm. One defining moment came in 1964 when the Surgeon General Luther Terry said smoking causes cancer. It was momentous. Let's take a listen. Cigarette smoking is a health hazard of sufficient importance to the United States to warrant remedial action. 
And we know, of course, the rates of cigarette smoking went way down uh, uh, after that. Last month, four of your predecessors urged you to develop a Surgeon General report on gun violence as a public health crisis. Will you do it? Well, I think it's important to look at a couple things here. The Office of the Surgeon General has an important role to play here. And I have, even before I was Surgeon General, when I was going through my confirmation process in 2014, in 2012, when I was Surgeon General and afterward, have spoke, been outspoken on the issue of gun violence because it is a public health crisis. And I've urged legislators and community leaders to take this issue seriously and take measures, mm-hmm. uh, put measures in place that will reduce gun violence. And I will continue to do that. Uh, when it comes to other initiatives that may help, written products, et cetera, our office is always looking at additional products that we can create. But the focus has to be on helping the public understand uh, what actually does move the needle and on working with communities to enact those solutions, working with legislators to make sure that we have the resources we need to enact those. And that is a lot of what our office has mm-hmm. has been doing. Finally, keep in mind this. The 1964 Surgeon General's report on smoking was a really powerful moment, but that report alone is not what changed smoking rates. What changed smoking rates were that communities took the advice of the Surgeon General and took the uh, you mm-hmm. know advice of others yeah. in the public health yeah. community and actually led actions in their community to educate folks to push for laws and regulations that would reduce access to cigarettes for youth. These are some of the measures that help, and that's a broader movement we're going to need in our country mm-hmm. to ultimately address gun violence. So, Dr. Murthy, do I hear no or not yet as far as uh, commissioning a report, uh, a Surgeon General report on this? Well, what you hear is that we are always looking at measures that, to see what more we can do on this issue. And if I find a measure that I believe will move the needle on, on the, the public health impact of gun violence, in addition to speaking up on the issue and writing what I've written, okay. I will certainly take that approach. But that's got to be the measure. It's not about publishing uh, you know, something for the sake of publishing something. We've got to mm-hmm. make sure that we are taking action that's actually going to drive change in our communities. Okay. A uh, little bit of time left, Dr. Murthy. Uh, public health is about evidence and data. So can I ask you to give us one or two stats, data points on this crisis that might surprise us, maybe surprised you? I'll tell you the one that I found the most disturbing and that I realize many people aren't aware of, which is that gun violence is now the leading cause of death among children, teenagers, and young adults under the age of 25, the leading cause of death. Mm. That was not true several years ago. And it tells us that the crisis of gun violence has gotten worse in many parts of America. And I think about that set a lot. And I also think about it in the context of the conversations I'm having with kids all around the country who talk about how gun violence is a struggle for them. So I'm going to do everything I can during my time as Surgeon General to work on this issue. We've got to do this together. Our kids are depending on us. That is the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. Coming up next... A judge just denied Johnson & Johnson's request to defuse thousands of lawsuits from consumers claiming J&J baby powder causes cancer. After the break, Scott explores why that ruling could have implications even beyond the people filing claims against Johnson & Johnson. Stick around. Johnson & Johnson is being sued over its baby powder and whether it historically caused cancer for consumers. But the federal court just rejected the company's legal plan. 
Johnson & Johnson tried to use bankruptcy court to block nearly 40,000 lawsuits, but an appeals court yesterday said no, dismissing its bankruptcy filing. And plaintiff lawyers cheered the ruling. Here's attorney John Ruckteschel. The bankruptcy courts were designed for honest companies and honest individuals who are in financial distress, not for billionaire, massively profitable companies like J&J. This is complicated, but we have NPR chief economic correspondent Scott Horsley on the line to talk it through. Scott, hello. Good to be with you. So just to step back, what are the plaintiffs blaming Johnson & Johnson's baby powder for? Well, J&J was facing tens of thousands of lawsuits from people who say they were sickened by the company's iconic baby powder. Uh, The plaintiffs claimed that talcum powder was contaminated with asbestos, a substance that's known to cause cancer and other ailments. Now, J&J denies that. The company insists its baby powder is safe, and it's since reformulated the product, switching from talc to cornstarch. But this was a potential problem for the company. J&J had already paid out several billion dollars in settlements and judgments and legal fees and was potentially facing a lot more. So the company turned to this controversial legal tactic called Mm -hmm. the Texas Two-Step. First, it assigned all the baby powder lawsuits to a spinoff company called LTL Management and then immediately put that company, that spinoff company, into bankruptcy. So just trying to understand this then, uh, Johnson & Johnson forms this new company, which has this liability. That means Johnson & Johnson, kind of the original company, is walled off from any lawsuit liability and any financial damage? Well, that's that's the good question. I mean, the, but there's, an, there's a long history of companies that uh, faced, you know, a flood of lawsuits that used bankruptcy as, a, as an efficient way to deal with those claims. We saw that, for example, with the makers of silicone breast implants, the Dalkin Shield IUD. But as, as you point out, the difference here is that J&J itself wasn't going bankrupt. Only the spinoff company was. And that's mm-hmm. a fairly novel approach. Uh, a few other companies have tried this Texas two-step. And the jury is still out, really. Legal analysts and policymakers are watching these cases very closely. There were warnings before yesterday's decision that if J&J were allowed to pursue this tactic, then a lot of other profitable businesses might follow suit to limit their own legal liability. Mm -hmm. Some members of Congress even want to rewrite the bankruptcy code to prevent that. So, Scott, just to understand what J&J was trying to do, was it to escape liability for these lawsuits and say, you know, sorry, this new spinoff company is bankrupt, so we can't pay? Well, that's what the plaintiffs say that J&J was trying to do. Uh, Johnson Johnson says it was simply looking for an efficient and orderly way to resolve these complaints. Okay. Uh, Scott, you spoke yesterday to the plaintiff lawyer, John Ruckdeschel. Uh, here he is saying a company should only be able to declare bankruptcy if it's in financial distress. If you're going to file for bankruptcy, you have to have some sort of financial distress that's legitimate and not manufactured just for the purpose of accessing the bankruptcy courts. And this is a huge vindication of the rights of tens of thousands of Americans who have been harmed by deadly products. So now is this a, a green light for you know, tens of thousands of people suing Johnson & Johnson in these uh, asbestos cases? It is. If this ruling holds, it means that Johnson & Johnson plaintiffs will get their day in court. Now, that's no guarantee they're going to be compensated. They still have to make the case that, in fact, their illnesses are tied to Johnson's baby powder, and that's by no means a slam dunk. But at least the opportunity won't be short-circuited by the bankruptcy court. And I understand Johnson & Johnson says it plans to appeal this uh, Third Circuit Appeals Court um, ruling. Finally, what is this case... Does this case tell us anything more broadly about companies using the bankruptcy courts to limit their exposure to lawsuits? 
Well, it's it's not really clear. In this case, the appeals court found that J&J's spinoff company still had access to tens of billions of dollars worth of assets from the parent company, J&J itself. So it tossed the case, saying there's no real financial distress. But the court really didn't address whether the Texas two-step spinoff itself was legitimate. So it's possible that other companies will continue to test this tactic. There are other cases now pending in other appeals courts. In fact, J&J originally sought to have this bankruptcy case heard in North Carolina, which it thought would be a friendlier setting. Hmm. Ultimately, though, the case was moved to New Jersey, where Johnson & Johnson's headquartered, and that's why the appeal was decided in Philadelphia. And Pierre Scott Horsley following this. Scott, thanks so much. You're welcome. Coming up, Robin Young speaks with the author of a new book that dives deep into the siege of Wake Up 30 years ago, which he says continues to inspire far-right activists today. That's after the break. This year marks the 30th anniversary of Waco, the shorthand for the fiery, deadly standoff between federal agents and members of the religious cult, the Branch Davidians, led by David Koresh. They were holed up in a compound on Mount Carmel outside Waco, Texas. On February 28, 1993, agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, propelled by reporting in a local paper about sexual abuse, bigamy, and weapons in the compound— raided it. Branch Davidians shot back. Four agents were killed, as were six Branch Davidians. Hundreds of federal agents, now also from the FBI, then began a 51-day siege that ended when FBI tanks rammed the compound, tear gas was sprayed, and inferno started. Seventy-six people died, including more than 20 children, most fathered by Koresh. It all unspooled on television, inspired one young man, Timothy McVeigh, who'd become the Oklahoma City bomber, another, Alex Jones, who built his empire on conspiracy theories about Waco, and also inspired modern-day militias behind the January 6th insurrection. Phew. Author Kevin Cook's deep dive into Waco and what followed is called Waco Rising. He joins us now. Welcome. Thank you, Robin. It's good to be with you. Boy, there is so much here. You dive deep. You talk about David Koresh's early life, born Vernon Howell, dropped out of high school, kind of a misfit, found religion, made his way to the compound of the Branch Davidians, who are a splinter group of Seventh-day Adventists. We see Koresh took on others who wanted to lead it in, you know, gun battles. But just what was it about Koresh that made people want to follow him because he did win the leadership of this group? David Koresh is often described as charismatic, a cult leader. Cult is a word that I don't use, partly Mm -hmm. because it means so many different things to different people. The thing about Koresh was not really charisma. It was that he was able to make the Bible, the often confusing, often conflicting stories of the Bible, compelling to have great meaning to his followers. His followers were sincerely religious. I happen to believe that David Koresh was a monster. What he did, I think, was to make his followers feel that they had a great role to play in the coming apocalypse. They focused on the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. They focused on the violence that was coming and believed that they had a final battle to fight against 
the government, and they used a biblical term to describe the ATF and FBI and other law enforcement forces encircling them, they called it Babylon. And they believed that what happened when the government forces struck proved that David Koresh was right all along and that the end of the world was happening before their eyes. Well, and this is the major criticism of the ATF, first and foremost, but then the FBI that followed, that the government agencies didn't understand who they were dealing with, didn't understand that in the aggressiveness, all the tanks that rolled in, they were actually part of his self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that's exactly right. The FBI initially considered it uh, what they call a hostage barricade situation. That is, in some sense, like what we all picture Dog Day Afternoon, Mm -hmm. that this is an instance in which the evil uh, perpetrator has taken hostages. But the Branch Davidians were not hostages. They wanted only to be left alone. So the idea that was pushed on The new attorney general, Janet Reno, Bill Clinton's new attorney general, who had made her name fighting child abuse cases, the FBI, I believe, misled her intentionally by telling her that David Koresh and the other Branch Davidians were beating babies. Mm -hmm. Koresh was a monstrous figure. He took, quote-unquote, wives as young as 12 years old. There was definitely sexual abuse going on. But the children that came out of that compound showed no signs of physical abuse. Although he was, as you said, monstrous, separating the men from the women. These were married couples, betting the women to father Children, he had over a dozen of his own there. He sent other children out as he did his negotiations. And two members who didn't want to be separated, didn't buy into this, left. They were the ones who were calling into the newspapers and saying, this is what's going on. The newspapers wrote about possible child abuse. And it all just, you can see how it just builds and builds and builds to there seemed to be a point of no return. I think that's true. Uh, the uh, the initial FBI negotiator, Gary Nesner, got a lot of the children out by negotiating with David Koresh, by being patient. After Nesner was relieved, nobody came out. The decisions were horrendous. I believe that what happened at Waco really boiled down to an unhinged leader named Koresh colliding with a government that made a series of deadly mistakes. With an unmoving government that didn't understand the religion and what he was preaching and how they were playing into it. Look, I I mean, it's astonishing. And we recommend the book for all these details about what was going on, crowds gathering, vendors arriving. And you detail how among the crowds was a 24-year-old Timothy McVeigh who sold bumper stickers. Alex Jones was a teenager who was working at a radio station. He started programming just about the conspiracy theories around Waco. He was fired by the radio station began his own empire, as we know, rebuilt a chapel on the grounds of the conflagration, which is still a tourist attraction. Talk more about, you know, what came out of Waco. I think it it is important to mention that Timothy McVeigh was there, that uh, he is one of, was one of millions of Americans who believed that the government is out to take your guns. And if you will not surrender your guns, the government will kill you if necessary. And what happened in Waco led fuel to that belief. Timothy McVeigh, a a decorated Gulf War veteran and a Koresh supporter, was down there, as you say, selling bumper stickers. He chose the 
second anniversary of the fire at Waco to bomb the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City mm. in uh, 1995. He hoped to incite a civil war against the government. These things still echo, of course, today. It was 1999 when uh, the shooters at Columbine High School chose that same anniversary. They didn't have enough ammunition that day. They waited one more day. But that, again, was meant to echo what happened at Waco and then the shared anniversary with Oklahoma City. Alex Jones, yes, he did uh, hatch his first conspiracy theory at Waco, calling it a murderous government killing. And mm. we, we hear further echoes all the way up through January 6th. And I fear beyond January 6th, because there are still very many people who believe that what happened at Waco, they call it their awakening, and talk about Waco 2.0, talk about remembering Waco as the example of a murderous government rolling tanks toward Americans. I think that uh, it gains more meaning as every day passes. Well, you in 2009, we remember that report that came out of the Department of Homeland Security, Daryl Johnson, uh, writing about how domestic terrorism was the biggest threat to America. He was excoriated by Republicans, and Democrats backed away from it because it seemed to offend returning veterans because it pointed to the number of veterans mm -hmm. who were signing up on these militias. This Daryl Johnson said, the modern-day militia movement owes its existence to Waco. That's in 2009. Kevin Cook, tell us more how the word Waco is used. The site uh, at Waco has become a pilgrimage. It's really a hub of the modern militia movement. By no means are all the visitors there militia members, but the current pastor did tell me that the Proud Boys were here not long ago. Uh, he told them that if David Koresh were alive today, he would be one of them. Mm. Waco, the word, has become uh, what one FBI agent described to me as the word that many militia members call their awakening. Remember Waco is one of the terms that one hears. Well, Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the Proud Boys now on trial, also has spoken of Waco. Uh, Stuart Rhodes was, yes, was another. To people like Tarrio, people like Stuart Rhodes, the deep state was revealed at Waco. The idea that government is out to take Americans' guns and will kill them if they resist. There were successful uh, interventions later when the bloodshed was avoided through the lessons of Waco. Bill Clinton called this a mistake, and he said, it's my responsibility. Mm. Uh, Janet Reno said, had she known at the time what she learned later, she would not have given the okay for that tear gas attack. So you draw the line uh, to January 6th, meantime. You also remind us that some of these Davidians still live in Waco, still go to that church. Some just say, look, we were just religious people. I, I don't understand how suddenly Donald Trump is involved with us, and he's referring to January 6th. Then there's Heather Jones, who was the last child to be released from the compound before it, it burned down and all the other children were killed. She still lives in that area. She's a mom. What does she tell you? She told me that she still has dreams about David Koresh driving up. And I mean, this is, this is a young woman who from the age of eight was groomed to become one of his wives when the time came, who was told not to love her parents because David Koresh was the only leader, the only person that the children in that compound were to follow. 
She has rejected religion because of the terrible experiences of her youth. She's one of the um, survivors that I came to like, spend time with and like mm -hmm. very much. There are others who have not rejected Koresh even 30 years later who believe that he will come back from the dead and lead them. I, I believe that his followers were very sincerely religious and were misguided in a deadly way in a way that that affected all of America, not only them. Yeah. Oh, there's so much. Terrific book. It's called Waco Rising, David Koresh, the FBI, and the Birth of America's Modern Militias. Kevin Cook, thank you so much for talking to us about it. Thank you, Robin. It was good to be with you. And we've got an excerpt from that book at hereandnow.org. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by James Marino, Catherine Swartz, Koyani Saxena, and Emiko Tamagawa. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Thank you.